0: I had literally nothing. I couldn't hug my own children. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I had no job. And it, what kept us going was the income from our real estate portfolio. It kept my family a family. And it allowed them to live a normal life. It's then when you understand what wealth means. Uh It's then that you understand the value of passive income and how this isn't just You know, this isn't just words. This is is meaningful. This is impactful.
1: You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson.
2: Alrighty. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode 112. Clark, how's it going, man? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, it's, uh, we're getting close to the, uh, Christmas holiday and all the fun traditions that come with Christmas and stuff. How about, how about y'all? getting ready for Christmas and the holiday?
3: Yeah, we're heading home here in the next couple of days. Uh, Something totally side note here. My wife and I have been watching the documentary about, or I don't know if it's really a documentary, I guess it is, the three episodes about Bill Gates on Netflix. Have you seen that? I have not. Oh, it's worth it. It kinda it kinda goes into his life and, and some of the chari- charitable contribution stuff or philanthropy, I guess you should say, stuff that he does and how he got to where he is and the starting of Microsoft. And anyway, we have one more to watch. It's a three part series. But oh, nice. anyway, I re- recommend that to you and anyone really. It's uh it's it's really interesting, really well done. We'll yeah, have to check
2: that out. You know, I was reading an article this week on entrepreneur dot com and it, it's entitled Seventeen Habits of Self Made Millionaires Who Retired Early. And I was just kind of going through a bunch of these, and I know you and I kind of discussed this beforehand, but it's kind of interesting, to kind of go through a couple of these. You know, let's read a couple take inventory of finances, track net worth and spending. You know, they're frugal, uh, that they underspend on housing. You know, some of these trends are, are very similar to what we've been seeing with some of our millionaires on the podcast.
3: Yeah, totally. And and I think we've had what? How many have we had? A few that have retired early. There was one couple initially that we had early on in the show that was. That that was their goal, right? They were selling everything and then traveling, and then I know we have a, another guest couple coming up that did the same. But we've had a couple that have, I, I guess, quote unquote, retired early, right?
2: Yeah, we have, and and I think I think you're going to see more and more of it. Chris Hogan in his new book and his his big philosophy right now is that fin- retirement's a financial number, not necessarily an age. You know, I think for the longest time we've always kind of thought of a traditional retirement age in this country. And he's really all about the retirement number. And I think a lot of people are really taking inventory of that. Maybe maybe for some people it's not necessarily a net worth number, but maybe a passive income number that they can kind of live on and, and keep their expenses around that.
3: Yeah, I'm just scrolling through this article. You just sent it number nine. It says after retiring they spend even less. And and the people they quote here are Christy Shen and Bryce Lang, who retired at thirty one. And we're on the website Millennial Revolution. We'll be releasing their episode in, in a couple of weeks. They said they live on thirty thousand dollars a year. That's less than the forty thousand they spent living in Toronto. So that's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, and I think you know after they retire, a lot of them, you know, money's not much of a motivating factor for them. I think we've seen that a lot with you know any of our millionaires that have retired or any of them that are on the verge of retirement. That you know they've already got to that point, and and really it's kind of about life, lifestyle design for them in a lot of ways.
3: Yeah. And that's something I think we should start asking people too. something that would be interesting is saying, hey, what's, you know, what's happiness and what does wealth mean for you? Yeah. Right. Because for some people, it, it's obviously money, you know, for some, it's power. But for a lot of the people that we interview and certainly for those that this article references of retiring early, wealth and happiness isn't going to mean just strictly money. Right. It's going to be enough to be able to do what they want to do. You know, beyond that, it's, it's going to be in flexibility, really.
2: Totally. You know, number 14 in 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 an article talks about developing hobbies and and Justin uh, from the Root of Good blog, who came on our show when we were really, really early in the early days, you know, talks about his hobbies, like he's going on a walk and reading. And, you know, it kind of reminded me, I was at dinner uh, this last week with friends and met this new couple and they were kind of sharing their goals and and what they were kind of Headed towards, and one thing they brought up was that they want to take a sailboat or any boat, I guess, but most likely going to be a sailboat and and kind of, you know, sail the world once they kind of get there. They've got a five year plan to get there. And I just thought that was kind of interesting. I asked him how long it was going to take, and he's like, you know, I don't know, but I've got to be able to do something in retirement. I think that's a conversation that a lot of people forget sometimes. (laughs) I've had it with my dad. Like, you know, he's planning to golf a lot in retirement. But what, what do you kind of retire to, you know, because right, a lot of right. times you've spent so much time working or doing these things, you kind of have to redesign your life a little bit when you kind of get to that point.
3: Totally. Totally. How are you going to fill your time?
2: Yeah. I mean, you could travel, right? Like some of them travel and that's, that's mentioned here. But yeah, I don't know. I, I love to travel, but sometimes I'm like, man, could I travel straight for a year or would I kind or,
3: of, retire or, or 20
2: years or 20 right. years or 40 years or, yeah. or whatever. So. Anyway, good, good article if you're interested in it. That's, once again, that's on entrepreneur.com. It's 17 Habits of Self-Made Millionaires Who Retire Early. So on today's show, we've got AJ. This is a special treat for us. His story is one that will motivate, uplift, and inspire you. It's an episode you do not want to miss. He has a current net worth of between 15 and $20 million, primarily invested in self storage real estate. don't want to give too much away at this point, but at one point, AJ was completely disabled and thought he might die, and has since rebounded to where he is today. So it's going to be a great episode today. On last week's show, we had David, who is the host of the popular podcast, Money for the Rest of Us, and the author of the new book by the same title. We talked about David's background as an institutional money manager, his thoughts about where the market is today, where the market will go in the future, and what he kind of thinks the expected returns might be. And he shared his some insights about his new book as well as his podcast.
3: Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. Sorry to interrupt you that that he thought just going back to last week's episode, it was about a five percent, five to six percent, or five to seven, I believe, right yeah. return um, that he was expecting. And then to to touch base on AJ, we were recently on on his podcast as well. We kind of shared our story and some of the things that have stood out to us from doing some of these millionaire interviews. So. He has a, a podcast called Cash Flow to Freedom. If you're interested in that, we were the episode that was just released this last week. So it was, it was fun to kind of talk to him on the back end as well. But also, like Jay said, just a totally inspiring story here.
2: So before we get into the interview with AJ, I want to thank our sponsor, Obsidian Capital, for supporting the show. Creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identifies stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide strong financial returns, a healthy risk profile, tax incentives, and additional benefits that come with investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high level of integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 million in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has over 45 years of combined industry experience. View their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. Once again, we appreciate you listening to the show. We've got a few sponsorships opening, spots opening for the beginning of the new year. And also, if you're interested in being on, on the show uh, and would like to share your financial story, once again, our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We've got several other opportunities in the multifamily space. We appreciate all those that have reached out to date. And uh if we haven't gone back to you, we will we'll get you on a phone call and then we'll kinda of get caught up. So without a further delay, let's please help me welcome AJ to the show. AJ, do you wanna just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Yeah,
0: I'd be happy to. So I do a few things, but my primary holdings are in self storage, um, I own some commercial properties and a few other businesses um, but we acquire underperforming assets and turn them around as well as companies um and then we we work with companies and their insurance also so i you know i I kind of view it as we got our hands in a few different pots. We're starting up some software companies in Southern California. So yeah, it's been a busy fall. We'll, we'll put it that way, but I'm based up here in Boise, Idaho. And, uh, really my focus has, it is on the real estate portion. So I was started, I got started in selling insurance. That's, um, my father sold insurance. I came and we sold and I sold insurance with him. And I, I like that a lot because. My income was solely dependent on me. If I didn't sell anything, I made no money. And if I sold something and, but vice versa, there was no cap to how much, you know, I could make. And that's how I started my career. It was go out and sell something or starve. That, that was hard, but I think I did it at the right time in my life, you know, so it was easy for me to learn really quickly how to sell and how to attract money. And I could fail a lot and I didn't need a lot of money. I mean, I was starting out like 800 bucks a month, you know, cause I just, there was no sales. Um, so I did that and then that, you know, was going really good. We did that most of our lives, but I wanted to transist into something that I could scale more predictably. And that we actually owned the revenue source of the income. So that's why we made the move into self storage. And that's primarily we, we own just somewhere between a hundred and probably 140 million, depending on who's valuing it, of course. And then, uh, of assets. And four states: Idaho, Washington, Oregon, Nevada. We've done everything from developing to my favorite is buying underperforming ones, turn them around. We get the cash flow immediately, and we can do that really, really good. We're 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 good at it, and we can get great returns. But we've also done things like buying bankrupt super K-marts and converting them into self storage. So that's that's kind of my focus. But my other job is my benefits brokerage firm, and we work with companies all over that are going out and they're trying to either get insurance or they self fund their own insurance. And we're helping them control those cash flows and those risks because you're essentially your own insurance company. So they hire us to help them understand the risk of, uh, and moderate and monitoring the insurance portion of it with their reserves and cash on hand that they hold. So we, we help companies do that. And then of course we're buying up the online companies, their product based companies, more as a means to learn how to structure those deals. And then two, as we structure those deals, we're looking at a way to bring all those deals. When when we're dealing with storage, we were buying basically companies, little small companies, because we treat storage facilities as businesses, turning them around, and then we put the the ability, our holdings company that ran it, our management team were the ones that you know, got really good at turning those so we could just keep plugging them in. We want to do that with online-based businesses where we would buy those online-based businesses that were underperforming because of the lack of a lot of different things. But uh, most of the time, it's kind of like mom and pop real estate investors online. We can buy those up quickly and we can uh, set up an over a team that knows exactly what to do. We can onboard those turn them around, get that massive increase in cash flow, rinse, repeat. And so we, we do that. And then, um, we're looking right now, our newest venture is we went in with a, A lot of large storage developers and we're actually developing a property management software system for storage facilities that is going to be pretty, pretty amazing. We did a $7 million raise and it's, it's really, really exciting. It'll, it'll launch next year and that could be uh, an absolute home run.
1: That's awesome. I want to get into a couple of these things and ventures that you got going on. But first, what's your net worth today? Um, right between 15
0: and 20 million.
1: And, and kind of roughly in your buckets, how do you kind of break that up? Is it kind of like a third in real estate, a third in business and a third in other? How is that kind of broken up? No, yeah, the
0: vast majority of it's in real estate. So my real estate holdings make up, you know, 13, yeah, 13, 14 million of it. It's where, it's where we pump all our money. Once I get money, I put it into real estate. So our other businesses we bought, we started when we sold them and we dumped that straight into real estate. And that's act, that's, that's the process that we will keep and continue to do
1: interesting so let's let's rewind the clock here a little bit how did you kind of get your first deal under your belt to kind of get this snowball rolling for you
0: well you know it, the first deal it was funny my dad was looking at assets that he wanted to put money into but he didn't want to do something um that was too much Overhead. So there was these small little facilities and like nowhere land. You know, we're talking about a $600,000 storage facility in a town with a population of, you know, 10,000 just somewhere is basically to diversify and park money. Um, and that first deal that we did. So we went, we did, we flew up there. Um, we purchased it three years later we sold it and we actually didn't make any money we actually lost money Um, which is funny because you would expect that first one to be a a home run Uh, but really what what had happened during that time is i started looking at it and i and i came up with this this idea that most people that were in self-storage were in it for the real estate and uh, i had a I guess the the underlying theory was that this is not a real estate asset. This is an actual operating functioning business. You have multiple product types, not only in size units, but in variations of product offerings. We sold insurance boxes and we can do all these other services. And the, cause in the end, the market itself wasn't as straightforward as other asset real estate asset classes like commercial apartments, meaning that the product types weren't set across the market at the same level. So you, you know, you go into a city and all nice two bedroom, you know, one bathroom, they're all right around the same price range. That's not how it works in storage. And this intrigued us. But at the end of the day, we felt that the better operators we're performing at levels that were just blowing all the other operators out of the water. And it's because they could, they would come in and they'd just apply basic business principles, things that people in the real estate never even looked at, like revenue management and things like that. How to attract a customer? At what cost are you acquiring those customers? What's the lifetime value of those customers? And that was something that I had been. So on the insurance side, I was trying to grow. Um, our firm. So I'd go out and buy smaller firms. We would put them up into the bigger firm. And we, you know, you're buying, I was buying those smaller firms at something like a one and a half times revenue, maybe three at the highest. Um, but when they came into our firm, they're worth six or, you know, 10 times. And uh, that was just a really easy, simple way to grow. Well, when looking at storage, it kind of felt like the same thing. It felt like if we could come in, and if we could just readjust to current market rates, we are finding these underperforming assets that I could come in and do um, pretty strong management, revenue management systems and work with the unit sizes and current market, different market players that were higher. And we could manipulate almost the demand within your own facility. And you could go from, you know, we purchased one that was doing... Was it twenty six cents a square foot a month, and move that to sixty plus cents a month a square foot very very quickly. And some adjustments, we put $100,000, we had to clean it up. We had to change the way the consumer viewed and valued that asset. Like when they came in, customer service, we act like a franchise, right? We have lots of different things that we implemented to really focus on the customer and drive value and the perceived value. But then on the revenue side, we were doing things more like um, dynamic pricing. So instead of setting rates across the board, rates were set depending on different... Times of the year, different demands on different units. There was very active revenue management, which could allow us to move those revenues and those rates up very, very, very quickly. And then from there, we'd add on everything from selling tenant insurance to boxes, all sorts of other stuff. And we could take a facility that was worth, you know, three million and make it worth six or seven in a year. And, um, so the theory was that they were businesses underperforming. We could turn around we started buying it so after the small one stuff and we got out and we our first one that we did um and, you know it played right along those lines and then the second one was a large facility that we bought 2.5 million 3 years later it was easily 8 million i mean we tripled or quadrupled the revenues it's worked good so far and it's still working They're assets that we buy we hold we don't ever want to sell we i'm a cash flow buyer i want to be able to cuz The problem you have with insurance, even though we have the residual effect, so the businesses pay the premium, which then pays us in return. I didn't own those revenues, right? So that client could fire me at any time. And what ended up happening is I was, I felt that, you know, just because I was a consultant, I was working on my own time. I was so called my own boss. That actually wasn't true at all. I had lots of bosses. I was working all the time for them. And I just realized. My treadmill was just bigger than other people's and I was still on the treadmill and I can't compound that at a predictable rate because I can't predict the um commission flows because clients can leave you well in self storage in any real estate asset class. It was different. I could, I could look at an underperforming facility. I could overlay my model on top of it. There's the spread that spread. I can then calculate. I can take that and I can move it over to a, another asset that's underperforming and I know the rate of return and how much I'm going to get off that, I can keep repeating that and I can really compound out those returns and very quickly, um, which that just isn't very possible in those other lines of businesses that we had.
3: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's, it's unique for several reasons, right? And you touched on them, right? Obviously, if you if you own a self storage, you own the land, then you have the ability to to improve it, right? You mentioned that you have the cash flow. Then you have really very little work and upkeep, right? Once it's, once it's stabilized. And then the fifth one you mentioned is that you can sell boxes or rent U-Hauls or some of these other things, right? So obviously a, a great place to be. How did you guys, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but where did you get the money to, to buy the first deal? And is it, how has it continued to grow? You said you don't raise outside money, right?
0: So we have one deal that we did with partnerships, but the all our other deals that was all self financed from me and my family. We worked other jobs, we owned other businesses, we poured that into the company. we kept pouring money for years into our holdings company that was buying assets, never taking a dime out and working two three jobs at the same time to do it. We were moving our insurance funds over into our, our brokerage funds and the uh, funds of our business. And we'd sell, we sold our um, one firm and then we kept working there. And then we started up another firm and we just kept pouring money in it and just saying the long-term value of this, because it was the different, you know, I look at being rich and wealthy as two totally different things. Being rich means you make a lot of money. Being wealthy means you don't have to earn money. You don't have to work for money. And the problem that I had was I, I realized I was rich but I was not wealthy. I had to wake up every day to earn that dollar. So I, the transition into our new model was a transition to solve that problem. We were moving. Uh, and so we limited our expenses, living expenses as much as we could. And we poured the excess cash flow into a real estate asset. But two, we we're getting 20% cash on cash returns. We work very hard at this. And, uh, we just keep dumping money in it and letting our wealth grow. So that, that, that system of business income to real estate more of a passive income, if you do it right, it's, it's like steroids and it can just absolutely blow up. And that's why I start other businesses. We're buying other businesses for the purpose of using those funds to pour back into wealth creators and drivers. Awesome. Awesome. Good for you. I
3: want to shift gears just a little bit. I know you have uh, four kids, right? Is that right?
0: I do. I do. I have four amazing kids.
3: What is your thought or, or you and your, your wife's take on generational wealth? Is that something you guys have talked about? Do you plan on handing some of this money down to them or having them keep growing the business or still undecided? I
0: It is. I would love for my children to come and join me. But two, I'm, I, I guess maybe I'm a little bit of a dick, but I'm not going to give them it. So if they don't (laughs) come in and join me, if they don't come in and earn it, I'm not giving it to them. If they want to the ones that join and want to work for it and build it, they can buy equity into the companies. They can buy it and purchase it from me. I would be willing to sell it to them and they're more than welcome. And I would love for all of my children to work with me. Another thing too, though, that I understand they may not have interests. I, I try to create my kids to be producers, not consumers. I am a big believer in work, work ethic. As we sit here, I'm watching my children as they clean our commercial buildings. So they they get done with school, they go home, they do their homework, they eat dinner, and then they go to work every night and clean our commercial buildings to make money. And so when, you know, I have to install that work ethic and I um, and let them always know that they can achieve anything and I'll help them achieve anything, but I'm not ever going to give them a thing. And I will always join my children to create whatever they want to create, to produce value to society. And I will hand in hand help them. And the thing that I can pass on to my children is the knowledge and ability to know how to do that. And that is very important to me. That is a gift that money doesn't do anything. But the ability to pass on the knowledge on how to create your own destiny and how to create a life that you want to live, that you're proud of, and do things for others, that's that's the gift.
3: Yeah, I really like that, and I totally agree with you. And and, and it's a question I or we both try to ask some of the millionaires we interview because I think it's different for people, right? Some people are totally willing to hand it on. Some are like you, where they they'll teach them, they'll teach them work ethic, they'll work with them, they'll give them the opportunity to succeed, but they're not just going to hand it to them, right? And then there's some people that say, no, I'm not gonna I'm not going to give them anything. So just interesting to kind of hear that different perspective but it sounds like you're very involved with that with your kids obviously and and i know it wasn't always that way right i mean you mentioned with us and i've since read your story that that you were paralyzed right yeah could you open up a little bit about that and and maybe
0: tell us the story there you know it's interesting because uh i'm you know i'm a sixth generation idahoan so my family came up here herding sheep in the mountains and my parents were farmers things like that and they kind of installed that lifestyle and everything in us but we're very opinionated on certain things like education things like that and we're very involved with our children or education so my wife bought the school because we didn't like what was going on and just revamped it and fired everyone and hired new people and we created our own school to focus on making kids that not only produce value and they can go out and be self-sufficient in society, but we we changed a lot of things because early on I was more I guess I guess you'd say chasing the dollar, and I don't know what happened, but I started to get a feeling that we needed to change. So I moved over to this wealth creation. The month that my company became profitable, um, I was still working other jobs. I was working like three jobs, basically nonstop, and I was down in Southern California. Um, we were at a PGA tour with, uh, some of our clients, uh, at, in Nampa, California. And so we're down there. And my legs started to hurt and uh, you know, I, we didn't, we really didn't understand what was going on. So I'm like, Oh, I'm going to go run this off. Little did I know that might be the last time I ever run. Um, so I go and run and I couldn't run for very long. Um, but we, we rushed off. That was the first. I guess sign of trouble that we'd ever, we'd ever seen or felt. And, uh, we got back home, we left, came home and I got sick. My wife took me to the ER. We're like, something is going on. We don't understand what's happening. They ran all these tests and they're like, you're perfectly fine. Now I'm feeling, so now I'm feeling like a wuss. And they're like, there's nothing wrong with you. So I go outside, I'm puking in the parking lot. We go home. I get in the bathtub because my legs are killing. I like fall asleep in the tub for like two hours, right? And I go to get out. I can't walk. My legs don't work. My wife rushes me to the hospital. We're in the ER. All these people are just arguing what's over me. Nobody can figure out what's wrong with me. Finally, someone figured out what was wrong with me and they're like, we got to get you out of here. We got to get you to another hospital. So they sent me to another one downtown And with, in a very short period of time, I lost, I was losing my ability to uh, uh, breathe. So they put me into a coma. And, um, when I came out of the coma, um, I was fully paralyzed from head to toe. I couldn't speak. I was on a ventilator, couldn't, nothing, no speaking, eating, nothing. So I had feeding tubes, everything like that. They had me all hooked up to machines to keep me alive. Um, and that's where I laid. And my wife, you know, she couldn't, she could, you know, she couldn't do anything. She had four kids and a paralyzed husband. So she's running kids to school and running to my bedside. Um, I was absolutely overcome in pain. Um, a pain that was unlike anything you can ever imagine. My, my entire nervous system had been shredded to bits. So my body thought that it was on fire and being shredded, um, 24 seven. So I didn't sleep for, I think it was, um, I didn't sleep more than a couple hours for something like a month and a half. And I was in the ICU for several months. And then I went to a rehab center designed to hold me and get me into rehab. Then after that, they finally, the insurance company got tired. tired they, they I left the hospital out of the ER. They sent me to a long-term care facility to house people like me that we didn't know if I was ever going to walk again or get better. And so they can't hold you in the hospital like that. So I went to a place that could take care of me. And, you know, it, it, it's it's then when you understand what wealth means. Uh it's then that you understand the value of passive income and how this isn't just you know, this isn't just words. This is this is meaningful, this is impactful. Um my wife didn't have to think about getting a job and leaving the children and her paralyzed husband. We didn't have to worry about that Christmas coming up. I missed all the holidays, everything, obviously with the kids, I'm getting Christmas presents. Um we we weren't concerned about those kind of things we could focus on me and focus on me getting better. I was running the state's largest brokerage firm, which was a multi-billion dollar company at the time. Um, and they were based out of Chicago and I was paid very, very, very well to do that. I grew the company massively, but I was an employee. Um, I was working that job to fund once again the real estate. Um, and at that point it was. I was in the hospital and of course, you know, they come and visit you and it's like, we hope you get better by the way you're out of a job. So, you know, you're, you're stuck with nothing. It's, I had literally nothing. I couldn't hug my own children. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I had no job. And what kept us going was the income from our real estate portfolio. It kept my family a family and it allowed them to live a normal life and then when I came out of it and they took me home so once I got home I went home paralyzed I lied in a bed and my wife had to take care of me Um, so my wife took care of me and then I spent you know long time trying to learn how to walk again I had to relearn how to do everything I had to relearn how to eat I had to relearn how to um, obviously walk use my hands Uh, talking was weird for a while i was in occupational therapy everything else and that was my new life my new life was trying to figure out how to make my body function to work and we didn't know if that was going to be you know a few years or if it was going to be forever and uh, luckily for me i'm in like the top tenth percent of recovering and i've Mm -hmm. Working it like crazy, and um, I I actually just got out of my leg braces about a, uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's been over two years now, and wow. I got out of my leg braces. Um, so I'm I'm walking on my own without assistance, and that you know that that was more than we thought was ever going to happen. In fact, I was in rehab about seven months ago, and they just flat out told me they're like, "You're done. You're not getting any better, and like you're not ever going to." And so I left rehab. I was like, well, I I don't need that crap. I don't need to do that. <laughs> I, so I'm like, I'm done with this. So I decided just to just do it on my own. And, uh, you know, it's been coming. It's slow. I've done stem cells. I, I still have lots of medication I have to take. I deal with lots of, you know, side effects and fatigue. For some reason, your body doesn't enjoy being paralyzed for long periods of time. And mm-hmm. I, I lost 70 pounds of muscle because all my muscle evaporated. It took me almost two complete years to begin to eat meat again because my digestive system was on fluids for so long. It didn't know how to handle it. So yeah, it's been a long a couple of years. And uh, the day I got out of the hospital was six o'clock at night. The next morning, I had my caretakers get me ready and my wife and my dad and others took me paralyzed to work in my wheelchair and I showed up at the office. Um I think a lot of people were not very happy about that, but I just wanted to make sure people knew that I wasn't dead and I was back and I'm a I'm not stopping. So I started three companies since then being paralyzed and um we've grown our company even faster. And yeah, we're sky's the limit. I you know, I've been given a second chance and if you get a second chance, there's no reason not to knock it out of the park. And that's exactly what, you know, I'd plan on doing.
3: Mm. What an amazing, humbling, inspiring story. I mean, what, what, what do you say to that? Right. Yeah. You-
0: it, it gets rid of a lot of crap in your head after that. After, you know, yeah, after you have people taking care of every single thing you do, including going to the bathroom or everything else, I said, no nope. – no ability to control anything and take care of myself at all. They bathed me. I'd lie in the bed and they'd push me to the side and wipe me down or anything like that. You know, I came out of that and I stopped caring about a lot of things, you know, and that was all good. All good. I was like, you know what? There's basically nothing that I can't do. And if I can't do, who cares? I don't care about looking stupid. I don't care about being a fool. I'm going to do what I want. And I'm going to make change. And I just, it, you know, a lot of the petty things in life went away. I actually feel that I lived my life a lot fuller. Like what, AJ? What was at the top of that list? There's so many things. Uh, you know, first of all, you, you've, I can remember and I will never forget the first time that I drank water. When the water touched my lips and went down my throat, it was, To say amazing is not even comprehensible going months without drinking 24 seven. Your body is acting like it is you're dying of thirst. That was just, Oh my goodness. Wow. Like it was incredible. There's people in my life that I would die for. You find out who those people are really quick. And there's other people that, you know, I'm not really going to give a cent of time. And it has nothing to do with them at all. Nothing to do with them. It's not heart feeling. It sure. It's focus. And I'm more giving than I've ever been, more helpful. I'll drop anything to help anyone at any time. We're very, um, we work on, we, we, well, we help start a charity that gives wheelchairs out and other things like that. So I think we became uber focused and our children came into life because I went so long and I had to see my children come in to see me and look at their dad paralyzed in a bed and um my little ones didn't know any different, we just had a baby. So we'd had mm-hmm. a baby three months earlier. So that, that ended up, we, we didn't bring my children in to see me for it was like a month, maybe more. Cause first of all, we didn't know if I was going to die or not. And second of all, we just, it was going to be too traumatic for my kids to see. I was basically just, you know, moving my head and wrenching in pain and hooked to machines. So we're like sitting here going, you know, At some point, we had to bring the kids in, but it it was balancing that and scarring them. And so my little baby, though, he was a brand new infant. You know, he didn't, he obviously didn't care that dad was lying in a bed. He just lied in a bed, too. So they'd lie him up on my pillow next to my face, and I'd move my lips, and that's how I played with my children. So he put his hands on my face and he'd give my nose kisses and I'd move my lips around and try to squish his hands, things like that. And that's how I played with my children. So our children became focused in a way and our family became focused in a way like never before. How I viewed my wife, you know, she just stepped up to the game. She saved me and the rest of my family. So it it created a closeness that's hard to describe. And then, too. I knew I was never going to go work for anybody ever again because my time was not worth it. My time became so valuable that every ounce of my time was going in for me. It was going to create my life and the life that I want to live. And I was much more willing to take big risks for things that I was passionate about because the actual money side didn't matter to me. It was that I wanted to live a full life. I wanted to do something meaningful. I wanted to make sure my life mattered because I believe that I owed that to all those that helped keep me alive um, to God and everybody else that I owe that to them. So I have no problem working nonstop and just being really focused. I I, I don't need to go hang out with friends, you know. I got all my buddies. They go, they go to the bars or whatever on the weeknights and go hang out and goof around and watch TV. I don't do any of that, and I have no desire to do any of that. I'm with my kids, my wife, or I'm creating a future, and that focus is hard to describe and talk to people about because. You know, after what we went through, people, it's, that's, it's amazing. I'm not trying to get rid of my kids to go hang out with my friends. I'm not trying to, you know, I can't wait to not work or anything like that. I'm like, no, I love what I'm doing. I'm excited about it. I'm passionate about it. And I want to do more, not less. And things that don't matter, like watching TV, things like that. I have no tolerance for it whatsoever. Hmm time's precious and that wastes it. that waste
3: yeah well wow. amazing story amazing thank thank you appreciate you sharing it just it actually one of the things you said remind me of a listener question that somebody wrote in recently you said you're you're very given of your time and your money right you started a, a charity now giving away wheelchairs how did you kind of decide a how much to give and and b, who to give to Okay, so I I think that's something that's hard, right? Whether whether you have whether you have a million, fifteen, or a hundred, it it's kind of like some people always look at you and say you're you're not giving enough, right? And 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 also there's so many people to help and so many different causes. How do you determine which to
0: to to go in at? So I don't know that there's a right or wrong. First of all, I don't give money to people that I know us that I don't understand what's happening or where it's going to. So I don't give blindly. I give to my church. And then me and my wife give give easily over 30% of our income. It's not something we even talk about. And it's not something we even plan on. It's just how we happen. When I was in the hospital, there was a man, his family came to visit me on Christmas Eve. They were going around and singing and they came into my room and they were singing and he was in a wheelchair and I was in my wheelchair. And I looked at him and he said, Oh, I, you know, I'm paralyzed. When I was In the hospital on Christmas Eve I was alone and I made a promise that I would never let somebody else have to go through that and have to go be in the hospital paralyzed alone so he came to visit me and him and his family did I was talking with him and he said we're trying to do something where we take wheelchairs to those that can't afford it because we understand how big of a difference it makes and he asked me and just said hey would you help us and it was just you know immediate yes It was, you know, 100% of everything they do goes to other people. They don't use it to live on nothing. Every penny goes to helping someone out. So we immediately said yes, and we participate. We wish we'd participate more in that. Um, And then we also do – we help out with a lot of organizations. Uh, I think how we determine it is twofold. I like to help people that can't help themselves as a general rule. This may be totally wrong. That's fine. It's just not my thing. I prefer to help children. I prefer to help children to give them a chance to help themselves. Adults, um, we do like helping adults that um, do not have the means to help themselves. Like they don't have a wheelchair, things like that. But generally speaking, we give to our church, we give to the wheelchair foundation, and then we give to organizations and that help children that we know and are a part of. And then people who we personally know and are familiar with.
1: That's awesome. I think that's great. AJ, just kind of to wrap up here. Where do you kind of go from here? Do you have a, a net worth goal? Do you have a giving goal? What are you kind of plans for the next five, ten years?
0: Yeah. Um. I don't have a giving goal. I I do what I need to do, and I I do where it's needed, and where I feel comfortable doing. I don't believe that anybody has the responsibility to give. I give because I believe I personally have a responsibility to, I prefer to give time and to help other people, but I do have a lot of net worth as far as a number. So in the next, it, my five year goal is we want to get to a 500 million in assets and holding real estate. Um but I, I I broke down the passive income goal. So if I'm looking at 500 million in assets, I know that I need to in the next 5 years I need to be allocating several million into acquisitions that I can turn around and uh, get, uh, get my money out of within 2 years to reallocate that and still receive 20% cash on cash returns. And in order to do that, I'm building sideline business uh, businesses because I need to secure those revenue flows in different assets. Um, so I want to diversify the revenue. So if there's a slowdown in real estate, I have other lines of revenue that can I can allow to me to capitalize on the slowdown. So high cash flowing business. So I, I break it down to three parts. I have scalable. Businesses, high cash flow uh, businesses, and then basically passive, passive income. So the scalable businesses are like software product sales companies that are internet based. The high cash flow businesses are like the consultative nature companies where we're dealing business to business and we're paid lump sums. I pay producers and staff to handle it. And those are usually, I was running about a 50, 60% margin. And, um, I can work that pretty well too. then the real estate uh business, we have really good margins, and we have the team everything in place to scale. so I just need products, so we're working on getting uh um, more lines for acquisitions to get in because we're very i won't do deals just to do deals like i need a I need a rock star, and even though people say, "Oh, they never come up, I seem to buy them all the time so I'm totally comfortable doing that, so I'm looking at scaling the business income up to around in five years. that needs to be around ten million at five hundred million in assets on the passive side. That's really kind of the goal, and the reason for it once again is the allocation of capital to be able to compound my returns on the real estate side.
1: I think that's awesome. you got some great goals and and it seems like you got some great plans to execute that and and get to that level what What's maybe one or two pieces of of, of advice that you'd give to somebody and then also maybe a habit or two that you've picked up that you think's
0: kind of led to some of your success. Uh, man, this is so hard. So that's just like, it depends on the day, right? It depends on what I'm doing. I'm like, holy cow, this is so important. Uh, and then another day, it, it, it's so important. I, I, I think you need to remember people. You need to remember, you know, people, knowledge matters so much. It, it, everything is a people game, right? It, our economy is run off of transactions. It's ran off of um, perceived value and whatever we're buying. And people are what create demand. You need to leverage people. You need to leverage your time and your money to really achieve high-level success. And when I say that, leverage people, I don't mean use. That's not at all what I'm talking about. You need to surround yourself with people that are way better than you. And you need to put your yourself in a position of success. So you need to just start moving. Like right? You need to move. Most of our greatest successes weren't necessarily planned, but the opportunity arose because we put ourselves in a position to capitalize on opportunity. The other people didn't have or didn't get that opportunity. But I'm like, yeah, but that's because you have worked for 10 years to put yourself into a position to capitalize on the opportunity if it ever came. So... It'll never come to you because you're not in the position to capitalize on it and capitalizing on it. I just mean people resources. I'm not talking funding. I'm not even talking necessarily. funding. You can syndicate, you can do all these kind of things, but if you don't have the knowledge and if you don't have something to give to others as, uh, as you know, value, you're not going to have a seat at the table. So you need to create value within yourself. And in order to do that, you have to do things. You have to learn, you have to fail. You have to move forward we create value in the marketplace and for other people because we have a track record. Not all of it's good, right? I have failed utterly, miserably, massively, catastrophically, right? Um, I learned lick my wounds, move on. But it is that kind of experience that allows you and other people to get superior returns and superior (laughs) opportunities. And that doesn't happen by sitting down. So, Get moving and start doing deals. Minimize your exposure. Fail small, right? That's what you want to do. You want to fail small and you want to keep moving. And I, I it, there's so many directions anyone can go, but your ability to learn and to keep going and then to compound the results of what you learn that, that, that takes humility and that takes a toughness, um, that you just have to develop. You know, you're if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're playing the wrong game and you need to realize that there is infinitely more that you don't know than you ever could. So just get rid of get over yourself and get moving. And I think that's I wish I would learned that in my early 20s Um <laughs> uh, and get just provide value, provide value to others.
1: Yeah, I think that's a load of tons of great advice. Now you told us that you recently started a podcast. Where can people find that podcast, and where pe- can people find
0: you and get get to know more about you and your story? So, cash flow to free. I I have a podcast called Cash Flow to Freedom, which talks about you know building businesses and and you know compounding returns and creating financial freedom. Uh, then I have one that's purely for self storage and people interested in self storage. That's called Self Storage Income. That is just purely designed to have self-storage income. And the reason why I have these two podcasts, people are like, well, why are you doing this? You have so much stuff and you have a lot of things going on. Like kind of like when I went back to, you know, this is a people game. And to give you any idea, we we we're looking right now and we'll probably close. And, and uh, on a $20 million development deal that we're doing, that somebody came to me because they heard my podcast. They came to me because they're like, we needed to find somebody that was really good in this asset class. We have this land. We want to build this. We don't know where to go. They're listening to the podcast. They go, okay, you're the guy. I was providing value to them, so they called us up, and that can that that can make millions. So I create these podcasts to try to get out there, to try to talk to people, get this conversation going. And two, to share. This is important. This like financial freedom is really important. It's your life, and you're trading time for money, and your time should be so so valuable. So cash flow to freedoms focused on that, and then self storage income is just on just on self storage.
3: Wow. Awesome. So two great podcasts you, AJ. Again, thanks for coming on the show. Net worth about 15 to 20 million. Appreciate you opening up about about your story. Obviously, very uh, humbling and inspiring. So thanks again for coming on the show tonight. Really appreciate it.
0: Hey, thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it.
3: Thanks, AJ.